I wanted to talk about developing a culture of wholeness. And um, I don't remember when I preached last. Was it last? Yesterday? <laughs> no. Um, whenever, <laughs> whatever it was, I know it was good. <laughs> um, we're, I've been talking about developing a culture of wholeness and living in wholeness. How many of you were there? We talked about Third John two, beloved. I pray that in uh, all respects that you would that you would um, prosper and be in good health, even as your soul prospers. How many were here when I shared that message? Where, where, where were the rest of you? <laughs> I don't know whether to be encouraged that you're here tonight or be discouraged that you weren't here then. But anyway, I forgive you. I just want to not have any offense today. By the way, happy Father's Day to all the fathers and, and uh, to all the, the, the will-be fathers someday. Maybe sooner than you think. That'll be awesome. And. And I think it was Eric just a few minutes ago was sharing about a, uh, a father who had 12 kids and asked if he was done. And he said he, that, he had the, that God hadn't told him to stop. And I didn't know that you were supposed to <laughs> ask God about that. I need to go back and have another talk with Kathy. <laughs> she heard me. <laughs> Honey, <laughs> she's on the phone. She really connected to kissing the frog thing today when Bill was sharing. <laughs> She'd rather have a talking frog than me. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so, um, where do I start now? It was only like eight of you who were here. It was awesome. You should get it. Actually, I saw that CD. Okay. Turn to Third John 2, and let's just, we'll start there, and we'll do a little review. Just so you have some idea where we're going. Third John 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects that you may prosper. Everybody say prosper. And be in good health. Everybody say, be in good health. Even as your soul, everybody say soul, soul. prospers. And so we talked about, um, a couple of three weeks ago, we talked about the fact that, that prosperity and health are directly related to your soul, not your spirit, at least according to this verse. That we, would, we often read this verse and we read it like, Beloved, I pray that you'd prosper in all respects and that your soul would prosper. Um, I pray that you would, in all respects, that you would prosper and be in good health, even as your spirit prospers. But it actually says soul. It's the word psyche. It's, it has to do with your emotions, your, your mind, your will. And, and here, John says that the prosperity and health are directly related to the prosperity, the health, the wholeness of your soul. And so tonight I want to talk about developing a culture of wholeness. And it, we talked about in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, this is a real key kind of pivotal uh, verse for us. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to ju- judge I mean, a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit, both joints and moral. And it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so a lot of um, theology has come out of this verse 
where the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God cuts between the soul. Let's pretend this is the soul and this is the spirit. And it seems, seems to be saying that God is trying to, with the sword, with the word of God, he's trying to divide the soul from the spirit, the spirit being good, the soul being evil. And um, in this verse, and out of this verse and, and a, a few other verses like this, we have a, a whole culture. We've seen a whole culture developed in church history where people literally did everything they could to stay away from inspiring any kind of emotional response to other people or to God or to culture and to the place where we end up with people in monasteries and that's not drastic enough. Then we take vows of silence in the monasteries so that we don't stimulate anybody, each other in the soul. Because anything that was, it was thought of that anything that was, anytime you stimulate yourself emotionally, that literally that you were moving away from the Spirit of God, which was you know, was, which was code for moving away from a great connection with God. And um, Harold Eberle actually is the first one to actually share this in his book. I think it's called Spiritual Dualism. We talked about the fact that the Greek actually does not say that the word of God divides between the soul and the spirit. He actually says it reads like this in the Greek, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man and it actually pierced as far as the spirit from spirit and soul from soul. So instead of dividing between the soul and the spirit, he actually says that the Greek says it divides between what's the soul and the soul and the spirit and the spirit. Let me just read it the way it would read according to Harold. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the vision of soul and soul and spirit and spirit, both joints and moral, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And what Harold says is this, and I, I, I believe he's right. He says that the sword doesn't divide this way. He's not dividing. God is not trying to divide the soul from the spirit. He's the one that made us a triune being. He's actually trying to take out what shouldn't be in the soul from what should be. He's actually trying to cut out what shouldn't be in my spirit. Obviously, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about my spirit, little s. He's actually, the word of God is taking out of my spirit what shouldn't be and leaving in my spirit what should be. He's literally the master surgeon doing surgery on my heart, on my soul, on my spirit. And it, we would call it actually sanctification. This is the process where the word of God begins to take things out of me that shouldn't be there. And it, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. What's he saying there? He's saying that, you know, if you have cancer, you have a tumor, and you go get operated on, you may have a tumor that big, but we all know they're going to take that much out to make sure they got it all. But this sword is so sharp that it can... It can take out what shouldn't be in your soul and not touch one cell that God divinely planned to be there. He can take out what shouldn't be in your spirit and not touch one cell that he divinely planned to be there. Are you with me? And so we have this, this, this awakening, if you will. I feel like God is awakening us to the fact that he actually loves you. I mean, I don't mean this part of you. I mean, he actually loves y'all. Now, I'm not talking tonight about y'all. I'm talking about y'all. Like all of you. Are you with me? As a, ma as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The Lord likes my body. He wants me. 
<laughs> Seriously. It's an ever-expanding truth. In my life, I have to give the Lord room to move around. He needs a bigger house. The Lord likes your body. Do you know that? He's the ultimate body snatcher. He killed the old man, moved in inside, took you over. <laughs> it's a good word, actually. I'm right about that, too. And so, <laughs> so he actually, he actually likes the temple he moved into. He actually likes the flesh he moved into. Literally, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He actually likes your flesh. How many know that the Word became flesh and dwelled among us? And so, that's good. So far, we're on the right path. Romans 12, turn there. <clears throat> Verse 1, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, everybody say bodies, as a living and holy sacrifice, everybody say holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And you understand that you're offering your body, you, when you give your body to God, it's a living sacrifice and it's holy. Your body's holy to the Lord. Turn to your neighbor and say, God wants my body. <laughs> Tell him, God wants my body. <clears throat> and here's where we're going. Romans says, Romans 8 says this, that we who are led by the Spirit, are sons of God. So, how many of you know that we need to be led by the Spirit? That we need to be led by the Spirit. But that has been redefined to mean we led by the Spirit and kill everything else. And I believe that Romans 8 says this. In fact, let me just read it to you. You can stay right there where I told you Romans 1. We're going to go back there in a minute. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Everybody say mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What I'm getting at is this. The spirit leads me, right? The Holy Spirit leads my spirit and I'm a spiritual man because I am sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in my life. Are we with me? But one of the things that the Spirit is doing in my life is He's bringing wholeness to my body, to my mortal man. Like He cares about my body. He cares about my soul. And He cares about my spirit because He made me a triune man. When Jesus was um, about to be uh, crucified, actually, but when He was about to be arrested, and He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember this? He told his disciples, he said, I want you to watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. And he comes back, and what are they doing? Sleeping. And he, does, he wakes them up, and he says, what are you guys doing? I told you to pray. Yeah, well, it wasn't my fault. Peter's. Peter, was, he sung me to sleep. 
The Lord's not. Listen, watch and pray. Look at my eyes. Watch and pray. Got it. And the Lord comes back again. And what will he be doing? Sleeping. And the third time he comes back and he says, and he, and he wakes them again. And he says to them, the spirit is what? Willing, but the flesh is weak. We read that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is evil. But what he's actually saying is the spirit can take you places your flesh can't go. And I'd, I'd like to just say that I think that your spirit man has the responsibility to take care of your soul and your flesh. Like literally that God wants you whole, spirit, soul, and body. In Acts chapter 3, you know it's the man at the gate beautiful. And when he got, he's asking for alms, he's lame from his mother's womb. And remember when he gets healed, he walks, he leaps, and he praises God. He got physically healed, he walked, he leaped, he got emotionally healed, and he praised God, he got spiritually healed. And my, my, my whole point tonight is that God wants to make you whole, spirit, soul, and body. And He wants to create a culture of wholeness so that when people come into this culture, they don't just get healed, they get whole. They don't just, listen, I, wouldn't it be awesome if the culture was, was so healthy that people literally didn't get sick? Because, because the spirit man is leading the soul and the body into wholeness. Not just into healing, but into wholeness. And so um, I just I want to just talk about tonight about wholeness that that literally God cares about your about how you're doing physically. I don't I don't know um, if this comes across the way I mean it, but we have how all these ideas like like God wants to give us the gift of healing. Like everywhere Jesus went, He healed the sick. It's like He healed the sick. You know, 90% of the time, or I don't know, I'm, I haven't actually checked, but most of the time when it said he healed the sick, it was a physical condition somebody had. I know sometimes it was, they were oppressed by the devil and it was, it was demonic. But most of the instances, at least that I have in my mind in the Gospels, when Jesus healed people, most of the time it would relate it to physical sickness. Are you with me? So what would make us think that Jesus wants to fix us, but he doesn't want us whole? That somehow he wants us to to do things to our, to our body and to our soul that would damage our body and soul. And my point is this, is that if you're spirit-led, you'll take care of your soul and your body. If you're really being led by the spirit, you'll take care of the rest of your triune being because God loves your body and he loves your soul. And, that, and the most emotional person in the Bible is God. So we have all these things that kind of came out of this, this, this age of um, reducing our soul down to something, it, you know, at the, at the best, tolerable. We have these things we, we say that kind of stayed with us, where somebody, you know, is, does something and we're like, oh, that, that's, that person's in the flesh. In the flesh is code for evil, demonic, bad. Right? Or was like, that person just needs attention. As if you don't need any. Like, they need attention, but I could live in an aquarium surrounded by glass with just people looking at me. I don't actually need anyone to even look at me. You could put a, a towel over me, over my cage. And I would be fine. Like, I don't know, I don't know what, what we're actually saying, but... When somebody, when somebody obviously is doing things for attention, it becomes like some kind of a sin. Like this evil person 
actually trying to get attention. Like, what's wrong with you? You non-spiritual person needing attention? You, 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 close to heathen? Barely saved? Amen. And all the people who said, who need attention said? All four of you. All right, awesome. And so I think it's, we, we started talking um, in staff meeting, in our school staff meeting uh, Thursday, we were talking about developing a culture of wholeness for our students. A place where our students could come into to school and they could have their spiritual needs met, they could have their physical needs met, they could have their, their needs for their soul met in a way that's healthy. And part of the struggle is, is that, you know, if you... We, we go to church um, Sunday after Sunday, and I mean all over the world. I'm not talking just about Bethel, or I'm not even specifically talking about Bethel. I'm, I'm trying to make more of a, uh, a, a global, uh, broad view of the church. And Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, you know, week after week, people come to church to learn how to take care of their spirit. We need to pray. You need to read your Bible. You need to fast. You need to connect with God. You need to worship. And, and of course, how many of you know those things are all true? But I don't know if you're aware of it, but the divorce rate in the church is really close to the divorce rate in the world. The, the uh, morality rate, like we have an organization called Moral Evolution, so we've done a lot of statistical studies to see how we can best affect the, the mindsets of a young generation. I don't know if you know this, but immorality is, is almost as rampant, depending on whose statistics you believe, among Christian youth as it is among non-Christians. And what I'm getting at is this, is that I think it's our responsibility to teach people how to manage their appetites, no matter what dimension of their being it's coming from. And we stop pretending that people don't have them or that, i.e., they're somehow evil. So I want you to just, just to like, bring some closure to maybe what you're thinking. Turn to Galatians chapter 5 for a minute. And um, verse 16, because some of us are, as I'm sharing, and you weren't in the session I did, you're like, wait a second, I thought Paul said that the mindset on the flesh is death, and you're telling me that I'm actually supposed to take care of my flesh that the Spirit actually wants me to take care of my flesh. And so I want to make a distinction in verse, chapter 5, verse 13. In fact, let's go to verse 16. Paul says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And you're like, well, there it is right there, desires of the flesh. And you just said we're supposed to nurture and cherish our flesh. And Paul says right here that God doesn't want to fulfill the desires of my flesh. So here's the flesh he's talking about. For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. 
The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, and here's the deeds he's talking about, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissension, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so when Paul says that the, the mindset on the flesh is death, he's not talking about, like, like if, you're, if you're playing with your children and you're not being spiritual, you're dying. He's talking about these things, the flesh, the old man, sensuality, idolatry, strife, jealousy, outbursts, lying, so on and so forth. He's saying, listen, this flesh right here, when you set your mind on these things, Listen, this is death. This is the old man. This is the guy who's drowned in the baptismal tank. When you set your mind on these things, you're going back to the graveyard. You're digging up the old mind and the old man, and you're heading towards death. Are you with me? But in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says to husbands, he says, Husbands, love your wives as you love what? Your own bodies. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. So husbands ought to love your wives as you love your own flesh. So now the Lord takes the same word in the Greek, the same word flesh in the Greek, and he says, listen, husbands, I want you to nourish and cherish your wives the way you nourish and cherish your flesh. You're like, wait a second, I thought I was not supposed to think about my flesh. I thought I was supposed to kill my flesh. I thought my flesh was evil. That's your old man. He says, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. Why? Because the, if you walk by the Spirit, if you're born again, that old man is dead. The only way you're going to have those kind of thoughts consistently is to go back to the graveyard and dig and continually dig him up. Like, use your resurrection power on your old man, dig him up, put him back in your brain, and start thinking like he does. Are you with me? But that's not your nature because you received a new nature. You're a new creation. So that's not normal. It's not natural for you to think like that. It's natural for you to have a flesh that actually loves God. In fact, David said in the Old Testament, he said, my soul and my flesh cry out for the living God. Isn't it amazing that David built a tabernacle and had all of the priests and all of the people worshiping before the Lord 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which was totally illegal according to the law. In other words, he saw something in the future. He saw that there would be a time when all the people of God would be priests. And he took what was for another day, as Bill shared this many times, and he pulled it into his day. But one of the reasons he was able to do that is because he was experiencing things that New Testament people experience. Like he said, don't take your spirit from me. David, here's a man, before people were filled with the spirit, David experienced the infilling of the spirit. Before people's flesh was righteous, David said, my soul and my flesh cry out for the living God. He was experiencing New Testament covenant relationship in an old covenant. And therefore he got to worship a God when he wasn't, he got to worship in the tabernacle when he wasn't a, a Levite. Are you with me? <laughs> That's a good word, actually. So God wants us to be whole spirit, soul, and body. When God saved you, he didn't just save your spirit. He saved your soul and your body. In fact, the first, uh, the first time 
salvation is mentioned. It says, and 3,000 what? Souls were saved. 3,000 souls were saved. God loves your soul. Um, we talked about this a little bit before, but your body needs stuff. How many of you know that? Your, your body needs stuff. Your body needs food. This is really deep. Your body needs water. It needs sleep. It needs air. It needs sunlight. It needs ex- exercise. And it needs nutrition and so on and so forth. You know, if somebody jumps in a pool and they start to drown, nobody goes, oh, that person just trying to get air. <laughs> Selfish. Air seeker. And if you go in after that person to help them, they don't go, I'm so glad you came in here to get me some air. Do they? Um, They don't, by the way. Some of you are like, they don't? (laughs) No, lots of times you have to knock them out or you you have to do something to restrain them because they'll take you with them. You're trying to help them. They will take you with them. Are you with me? And what I'm getting at is this. It's not that they just want air. It's that they need it. <clears throat> your, your spirit, it doesn't just want worship. Your spirit man, it needs it. Your spirit man doesn't just want the Bible. It doesn't want, just want the Word of God. It needs it. It needs it to live. Have you ever... Have you ever had your spirit soar when, when your soul's bored? Some of you are like, I don't know. You need to describe that. Have you, have you ever been reading your Bible and you're like, you know, your spirit's like, this is awesome. Your soul's like, dude, we are so bored. And you get to see who's in charge. If you're led by the spirit or led by the soul right there, don't you? Because, you can, because oftentimes your soul talks your spirit out of Worship, it talks your spirit out of reading. It says, we're not feeling anything. But that's why it's called the sacrifice of praise. <laughs> it means I don't have to feel it. When I read my Bible, it's like, I don't, I don't, it doesn't have to be like, oh, that is so amazing. And my, and my soul's like, oh, we like this too. <laughs> it's awesome when my whole being gets involved, but it's okay if it doesn't, because I'm reading first to inspire my spirit, to feed my spirit, to train my spirit. And if my spirit gets trained really well, he can, tr- he can lead my soul really well and keep my body healthy because he wants to bring life to my mortal body. But if, he doesn't, but, if, but if my soul doesn't get inspired, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Careful how we, go. we get there. My, my, my soul needs stuff. My soul needs affection. It needs attention. <laughs> it needs love. It needs a sense of significance. It needs relationships. It needs other stuff. My soul, I'm not just saying it wants it. I'm saying it needs it. Like I was designed to have a vertical, vertical and horizontal relationship with God. I was designed to have a vertical relationship with God. I was designed to not live through you. I was designed to not have somebody in between me and God. I was designed to have a personal relationship with God. That's why, that's why we pray our Father, not like our King. He's my King, but when I come to God, I don't, it's not, He's not a distant, like I need permission to get in, uh, I've come to see the King. No, no, I am, he, the King's my dad. <laughs> the King's my dad. 
I, I love the a picture you've probably seen. It's a famous picture of, of uh, John F. Kennedy, and he's in this meeting with all of these diplomats and, and these commanders of his army. Do, have you seen this picture? And his, and his youngest son, or I think it's actually his oldest son, is, runs in and he's in his lap with all these commanders. Like, that's my, hey, that's the President of the United States. Oh, he's my dad. <laughs> Past Secret Service, pa- he's my dad. I know, I come to, I come to my dad, it's like, uh, Dad, I know you're king, like you're master of the universe, you're creator, but you're my dad, Abba, Daddy. Listen, I get to come in whenever I want. He's my dad. My dad's in charge of everything. Oh, great king, I love you so much. There's Chris. Hi, Dad. Dirt, you're being irreverent. No, you're being irrelevant. I don't want to be disrespectful. You know, I have two sons and two daughters, and I'm their dad, and I don't want them to be disrespectful. My, my, I have eight grandkids, and my son was, I was asking one of them to get out of the pool yesterday, and, and he was like, said something. He didn't say anything, actually. He just, he just said something, but it wasn't with words. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And my, my son, Jason, looked over at him and said, and I don't want to say which one it was, but looked over at him and said, Tell Papa you're sorry now. I'm sorry. I forgive you. I, I don't want to be disrespectful. I, that because he's my dad, it doesn't mean I can, I can disrespect him. But he is my dad. So I don't have to like be irrelevant to be relational. And so I, 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 was, so I was born to have a vertical relationship with dad. I don't need you to get in between me and dad. And, and if you're my leader, you need to teach me how to have a connection with dad. I don't want you to take the place of dad. And if you're a prophet, I don't want you to take the place of the word of my dad. I want you to teach me, give me ears to hear and eyes to see and teach me how to hear. That's the New Testament prophecy. I don't want you to take the place of the voice of God in my life. I don't want to need you when I need a word from the Lord, although I might. I'm going to fix this in just a minute, so just follow me to this extreme for a moment. I was born to have a personal relationship with Dad. And, and that's, that's 100% true, and it's true all the time. But I was, also, I was also designed to have a personal relationship with the body and the head. I was designed to have a horizontal relationship with God, the God in you. I don't, obviously, goes without saying, but because this gets put on Facebook and rebroadcast, I know, I know you're not God, but God's in you, and I need the God that's in you, and I need, I need the way that God flows through you to me. I believe in collective intelligence, and I was teaching in um, a particular country in, recently, I was uh, teaching a whole bunch of leaders. And we had a question and answer time. And one of the leaders raised his hand and said, um, what does it mean that we see in part and we prophesy in part? And I, my normal answer is that God only shows, a, you know, God, we live in mystery and God only shows a piece 
of the kingdom to us. Instead, I find myself saying, well, God gives you a part, he gives you a part, he gives you a part, he gives you a part, and he gives you a part, and I don't have the mind of Christ, we have the mind of Christ. Collectively, we have the mind of Christ. And altogether, we see the big picture. Because he wants to reveal all things he heard from the Father. He made known to us. So we have collective intelligence when we flow together in, in one mind. And having come to one mind is a phrase used twice in the book of Acts, at least in American Standard Version. And having come to one mind. What mind are we talking about? Christ. And having come to one mind, we've assembled ourselves into one mind. And now we have collective intelligence and we can see things collectively we couldn't see individually. Because you brought your peace, I brought my peace. And collectively... We, we were made to also have a horizontal relationship. So if you, if you, um, you know, if you're a maverick, a long ranger, or somehow you, you don't, for whatever reason, you don't connect to the body, it may be out of hurt, pain, I don't want to make fun of people, but you, you don't have, you, you can't get everything from Jesus personally that he designed for you because you were designed intentionally to have a vertical and horizontal relationship with God. And your, your needs were designed to be met both vertically and horizontally. Or, Am I making sense at all? And so um, I believe that, that God actually wants us to be in fellowship, in, in relationship. And so I want to talk just a little bit tonight, and we'll probably make this uh, uh, one more part. But um, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 7. And... Um, And I want to talk a little bit about the soul. I want to talk about the soul tonight. About the emotions, the mind, the will. I want to talk a little bit about the soul. In verse 37, it's a story that you'll recognize. Let's go to verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined with him at the table. I I think this is kind of a funny story because... This is, this is uh, in Luke chapter 7. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, and it's when he's, he's not very popular with the Pharisees, as you well know. And one of the Pharisees has the courage to invite him over for dinner. This is a pretty big move right here. You're inviting you're, you're, the Pharisee, the Pharisees who don't like Jesus, who eventually crucified him, said, you know, I'm going to make a connect with this religious, this religious leader. I'm going to have him. You know, he's kind of competing with us and he's healing the sick and he's drawing the crowds and people aren't coming to the Sabbath because they're following Jesus. And, you know, and, and the Pharisees don't like him and they're competing with Jesus and he heals people on the Sabbath and all of this stuff's going on. And this guy actually has the courage to invite Jesus over his house, which I think is kind of amazing. So he's sitting at the table, verse 37, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, actually, it says... Um, the, the Greek word there is that she was immoral. She was probably a prostitute. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she kept wiping them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet... He would know what sort of person this woman is who he's let touching him and let let touching him for she is an immoral person, a sinner. And Jesus uh, answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. This isn't Simon Peter. This is Simon, the Pharisee that invited him to dinner. 
Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. And they were unable to pay. He graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one on whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who has forgiven sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I, I love this. Um, this story, especially recently, I've been reading the Bible with a new light, a new revelation. And I, I think that you'll know what I mean. When the Lord gives you insight into something, suddenly you see it everywhere. It's a little bit like you try to buy a unique car. You know, I always say like a yellow Volkswagen. You're like, I'm going to buy something no one else has. And the day you buy it, everyone bought that car. How many have ever done that? Or you, ladies, you go buy it. I'm going to get this dress. No one's ever wore this dress before. And they, they guarantee you, like, this is the only one we got in. But after you buy it, you figured out that lots of other stores got the same dress in because you see it everywhere, right? No, not a good example. Okay, well, anyway. These Levi's, anyway, let's just go on. I love the story. I've always loved the story. But I realized this recently, that the religious spirit has no value for passion. The religious spirit has no value for passion. The religious spirit reduces our lives down to logic and reason. It's a great picture. This, this is a great picture of what the, feminine, what the feminine spirit brings to the church and how it's been removed through oppressing women. This is a great picture of the rest of the body of Christ that is missing in our culture. And I'm not talking about Bethel culture. I'm talking about church culture. Women have been oppressed. They've been, they've, been, they've been reduced. And this is part of what they bring. They teach us passion. And Jesus says to the, to the Pharisee, to the, the Simon, he says, listen, you think this is an immoral woman, but let me tell you about this woman. This woman knows more about passion than you do. You gave me no kiss. You gave me no water for my feet. This woman has wiped her, my feet with her, with her tears. And she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And it was a positive in that culture. And what I'm getting at is this. God wants to get rid of that Vulcan kind of, you know, Spock-like logic and reason culture that is sterile and that is killing our young people. He wants to get rid of it. (laughs) He wants to get rid of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20, Paul writes this, All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. 
In Romans 16, 16, he writes this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches in Christ greet you. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. In 2 Corinthians 13, 12, he writes this at the end of his letter. Greet one another with a holy kiss. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14, Peter writes this. Greet one another with the kiss of love. What I'm trying to say is that affection was a part of the early church. Kissing one another, hugging on each other, loving on one another. Jesus allowing a prostitute, somebody who's totally immoral. It's the opposite of our culture. Like in our culture, we've created a sterile culture because we're concerned about immoral people. So we're like, you know what? We can't touch anybody. We can't hug anybody. We can't kiss anybody because someone's going to think that we're, you know, something's going on with us. And Jesus said, this is exactly what this lady needs. This is what's going to save her. He turns to her and says, your faith, your faith, what did she do? She kissed him, she loved on him, she hugged him, she, she washed her, his feet with her tears. Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. I have a feeling there's a lot of people that aren't whole because we have this sterile environment. Sit in chairs, look at each other, give each other you know, a clap, a, a, a handshake. I'm just so, I don't know how these people survive on that. I'm serious. And, and then when, some, when people do get emotional with one another and make a connect, we're like, is that person a homosexual or is that person immoral? What's going on with them? Turn to, <laughs> turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. I want to show you something. Here we go. We, we, don't have the, uh, we, we haven't had the discernment to, to, to tell the difference between the vile and the holy. In 1 Samuel, first, uh, verse eight, I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came about that when he had finished speaking, that's David, finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as he loved himself. That's a soul tie, a positive soul tie between two men. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is right there. It's a positive soul. Let me read it again. Now, it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as he loved himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe he was on, that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set... Set him over all the men of war. Let me, just, let me just tell you a little bit about what's happening here. In chapter 14 of uh, 1 Samuel, it's the story of Jonathan and David. Uh, Ben's told the story here many times. Where Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Can the Lord save by many, but not by few? Do you remember the story? And there's all these, this army, this huge army, I think, of the Philistines. And they're, 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 um, they're, they're, attacking the army, the Israelite army. Actually, they're intimidating them. And they're there for many days, and nobody's doing anything. And one day, Jonathan gets up and he says to his armor bearer, Can the Lord save by many, but not by few? And the armor bearer says to him, Do whatever's in your heart. Remember this crazy story? And Jonathan goes out and and he routes the armies of Israel. I don't want to tell the whole story tonight because for the sake of time. He routes the armies of Israel. And we get a picture of Jonathan, like Jonathan's this amazing warrior. David doesn't come on the scene until 1 Samuel 17. 
Well, he gets anointed king in 1 Samuel 15. But 1 Samuel 17 is when David kills Goliath. But way before David's ever killing Goliath, Jonathan's the one who's routing the armies of the Philistine. It's Jonathan who's the great warrior. It's Jonathan who's famous in Israel. It's Jonathan, Jonathan, Saul's son, who is the most famous warrior in all of Israel. So when he takes his armor off and his robe off and he gives it to David, from that day on it says, And David led the armies of Israel. Who led them before that? Jonathan. Are you with me? Jonathan gives his... He's not just giving him some clothes. He's giving him his appointment. In 1 Samuel 8... Uh, I'm sorry. 20. Turn to 1 Samuel 20. Jonathan... Uh, Saul's... Saul's father, I'm sorry, Jonathan's father, Saul, King Saul, begins to hate David. And that's a long story. You probably know it. He, he's, we'd probably call it diagnosed schizophrenia, but he, he actually has an evil spirit. And he's jealous of David. Saul is jealous of David. Who, and Saul is Jonathan's father. And he chases David out of the, out of the palace. And he begins to want to kill him. And he's seeking his life over and over. And this is a much longer story, but every once in a while, Jonathan, you know, in the background, Jonathan's trying to save David. And Jonathan's leaking information where his father's chasing him and where his father's, where the armies are arranged against him and where his father, his, he's, he's, he's leaking the plan, his father's plan to David the whole time. And every once in a while, they meet secretly. Jonathan and David meet secretly. And this is one of those times. Verse 14, uh, we're going to jump right into the middle of their conversation. If I'm still alive, Jonathan says, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off. You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at David's hands, David, the hands of David's enemies. Verse 17, Jonathan made a vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. He loved him as he loved his own life. First Samuel, Second Samuel, Second uh, Samuel, one, verse twenty-six. Oh, I wanted to go First uh, Samuel twenty, verse forty-one. I'm sorry, I just want to read this one part. Sorry, it's so scattered. I was writing this during worship. Yes, instead of worshiping, I was doing this. It was just evil. <laughs> I hope you'll forgive me. And so Jonathan and David are, are um, talking, and Jonathan goes in to see if his father's actually trying to kill his, trying to kill David, and he finds out he is, and so they do this thing about shooting an arrow, and, um, and they, he's, he tells 
David says, listen, if your father wants to kill me, I'm going to shoot an arrow and tell the lad who's chasing the arrow, it's far beyond you. And I'll know that your father really wants to kill me. And so they're out there. Jonathan's watching. Um, or I'm sorry, Jonathan shoots the arrow. Jonathan shoots the arrow. And David's watching secretly. And Jonathan says to the lad, the arrow is far beyond you. And David knows that the king does want to kill him. And so the lad goes on, leaves, and David comes out of the bushes, so to speak, and Jonathan and David meet. And it says this, verse 40, Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go into the city. And when the lad had gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept more. Let me just read it again. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground. And he bowed three times, and they kissed each other, and they wept together. But David wept more. Let me just finish this. Now turn to Second Samuel. This is the news comes to David that Jonathan has died in battle. And David writes this song. Verse 26. I'm distressed over you, my brother Jonathan, for you have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of a woman. Oh, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. Let me just read this part again. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan, for you have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of a woman. We have all kinds of weird stuff that's coming out of those verses because we have a sterile Spock-like Vulcan environment where when somebody, when a man shows passion for another man, automatically it's deemed sexual. It's nothing to do with sex. It has to do, it has to do with two warriors, the affection and the passion of two warriors who love one another. Jonathan and David, two great warriors. These aren't wimps. These, this, this affection doesn't reduce these men down to some kind of, I don't know, what. sometimes we build a picture like when men show affection for other men or men show affection to women or when men show emotion. Sometimes we're like, well, that's just not a man. It's like he doesn't look like, you know, whoever you're Arnold Schwarzenegger or, you know, whoever your famous guy is. You know, he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't have the. The, 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 you know, he's showing emotion, he's showing weakness. But here's two warriors, the greatest warrior before David. Here's Jonathan. And here's a guy who's still famous today, David. And he has mighty men. Later on, we find 300 and 600 mighty men. And they're going after the giants in the land. These are, these are what we'd call men's men. And what are they doing? They're, they're showing emotion. They're kissing one another. They're loving one another. They're building a soul tie together. Why? Because they know how to love one another with the affection of God, with the passion of God. And I, I think that I, I understand that, that sharing this in, in the culture that we, that we have inherited can lead to all kinds of weird stuff. And, but... I, I'd like to propose that but having a sterile culture is actually leading to a whole bunch of weird stuff. 
that people are actually not getting their emotional, their, their emotional needs met, their affection needs met, their attention needs met, and they're going and they're getting it in the wrong places because fathers need to come home and mothers need to come home. And it does need to, we need to get rid of the sterile environment where we're so afraid to touch somebody like something bad's going to happen. And I, I understand I probably need to preach the other side of this message because of all the stuff that has happened, all the people who have fallen. And I understand that, you know, just as I'm even sharing, I'm like, you know, how people could take this and how people in our culture that are, frankly, that are perverts are taking this. But the, the thing is, is that a culture without affection is a culture that drives people to look for air other places instead of in healthy places. I've told this story before, but um, I'm going to end with this story. This is several years ago. I walked in and there was school ministry. Um, wasn't in the sanctuary at the time, but there was six girls in the sanctuary. They're sitting, standing right back there by those back doors. And I, uh, and I was just kind of running through to a meeting. And so they were there and, and were probably maybe 30 feet inside the door. And I walked in the door and I, I was hurrying and I, and I looked up and I saw these girls. Now this all happened this fast, but I'm going to slow it down to just let you know what was going on in my heart. And so I see these girls, and I know them. Our school was much smaller then. And I looked up, and I, this is my thought. Those girls are so beautiful. That was my thought. And so um, I, I, I thought, well, I'm going to take just a second and say, you girls are so beautiful. I just wanted to tell you you're so beautiful. I, I'm thinking I'm going to say that. And as I made my way over to say that, I had this other thought. If you say that to those girls, they're going to think you're sexualizing them. And instantly I had a vision. Now this all happened probably in milliseconds, but I felt like I was in this time warp, you know, where everything was slowed down. You, you know what I'm saying? I, I had this vision. It wasn't a vision with my eyes. I had it with my mind. And I was taken back to um, several years before to the days when my daughters, Jamie and Shannon, Jamie my oldest and Shannon my youngest, they're two years apart, when they were young and in, in high school and they were beginning to, um, I guess you would call it dating, although it looked a little bit different than what you might have in picture dating, but they would have um, these Christian alternatives like youth group. Bob Johnson was our youth pastor when my kids were in high school. And they would, Bob would have these um, kind of alternative things that they could kind of get a date and a date could take them to this alternative, whatever. It wasn't a dance. Stuff they would do. And Shannon, my youngest, would get like 10 or 15 guys trying to get her to go. And Jamie would get nobody. Nobody. And so we, so from, for three years, she didn't get a single guy ask her out. Not one. And so Shannon would get all ready, and of course she was all excited, and the phone would ring like days before the event, like the week before, two weeks before, and you know, Jamie would go to answer it, and it would be for Shannon. And then, you know, it would ring again. As the event got closer, it would ring more often, and Jamie would answer the phone, and it was for Shannon. And as the days grew closer, pretty soon she refused to answer the phone. And those days turned into months, and those months turned into years. And she would... When Shannon would go off, she would try to be excited for Shannon. Of course, they were very close. They, you know, grew up in the same bedroom their whole life. Went to China together, 
Mexico together. I mean, did everything together, inseparable. So Jamie would try to act happy, and Shannon would get out the door. Jamie would run upstairs to the room and throw herself on her bed. And I would run up after her and lay down on the bed next to her and put my arms around her. And she would say, Daddy, am I ugly? Am I ugly? Is there something wrong with me? And I would grab her face and I'd say, look at me. You are beautiful. You are beautiful. Then she'd say, how come no one calls me? I say, because you're so beautiful that you intimidate the boys. <laughs> and I'd say, get dressed up. I'm taking you on a date. I took that girl on more dates in three years than I ever took Kathy on. <laughs> it's a true story. Not ever since, but I mean ever before. She's like, Dad, you don't really want to go with me. I go, oh, I really want to go with you. And we would go, and my goal was for us to have as good a time as Shannon had. And we did that for three years. In fact, when we get close to the day, and I'd see she's not getting asked, I'd be, hey, if you get asked, you're going with me. I'm taking you out. Dad, I'm a, if I get asked, I go, no, no, I'm taking you out. You tell them you already have somewhere to go. And she just married the most wonderful man. I'm just so proud of him. They're senior pastors on the coast, and we just love them so much. Married the right guy. And I would say that. The right guy is going to come along. The prince is going to come along. And she calls from another country. She's like, Dad, I met the man of my dreams. I'm like, want to know exactly what I said? I said, he has to come and stay with me for a week before I give him permission to marry him. <laughs> and I worked his butt off, dude. He painted the house. He cleaned everything. I don't think a guy's ever worked that. It's a dowry, you know. At least he didn't have to get like a hundred, you know, Philistine foreskins or something. <laughs> it's a new covenant thing. I probably won't get you back tonight now, but. So back to I'm, I'm, I'm going towards those girls and I and I and I say, I'm going to tell these girls how beautiful they are. And I have this thought. If you do that, someone's going to think you're sexualizing them. And suddenly I have this vision and it's the vision of my daughter. And I'm laying next to her in her bed and she's saying, Daddy, am I pretty? Daddy, am I pretty? And I'm saying, you're beautiful. You're so beautiful. And instantly, and I'm sure this all happened really quickly, but I decided that day that I would not let the world tell me how to behave towards the daughters and sons of God. That as long as my heart was pure that I would show affection no matter what people thought. And so I went over to those girls and I said to those girls, I walked over and I said, now I'm more passionate now because I'm on a mission. I said, you girls are so beautiful. And they kind of looked at me, you know, like, I'm like, I'm, I'm mean it. Like, you are so beautiful. All of you. 
you're so beautiful. I just was walking by and I just had this thought, you're so beautiful. And I thought maybe you'd want to know. Man, from then on, those girls were like my disciples. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And I walked away, and it didn't seem like that big of a deal right then, to be honest, partly because I was rushing to a meeting, and you know how that goes. You don't process sometimes till later. And I got home that night, and I started thinking about, first of all, I didn't think through all of what I'm telling you right now. I had the thought, I wasn't going to do it, then I had the vision, then I was, then I was passionate about it, and I did it. And it wasn't, you know, it was later that I stepped back and go, whoa, what was happening? And I started thinking, when I got home that night, I started thinking, why didn't I want to do it? And I started thinking about, you know, all the moral failures, da, 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 and, you know, just, you know, bad stuff. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's keeping me, that's causing me to withhold my affection. Oh, wait a second. It isn't just me. It's a lot of other people. Wait a second. It's a whole culture. And what happens to people when, what happens to these young girls when their daddy doesn't tell them they're beautiful? And I started thinking, and I laid on my bed, and I cried myself to sleep that night. And I thought, what would have happened if Jamie didn't have dad laying in her bed saying, you're beautiful? What would she have done? I'm not saying she would have done anything, but I'm saying, what could have happened if she didn't have her dad taking her on dates? What could have happened? What would she have done for affection? What would she have done to compete with her sister or to make guys like her? I mean, what could have happened? My daughter's a very moral person, so I'm not trying to demean her character. I'm just saying the pressure of needing affection and being a young person and don't have a daddy there or a mom to say, listen, listen, those guys, they're afraid of you. You're too beautiful. Don't tell your sister I said that. It's a pact between you and me. And I realized that actually, we're actually creating the very thing we're trying to stop. Their immorality happens. We try to, to be moral. We, we reduce our culture's affection. People start starving for affection. Immorality increases. That causes us to withdraw further. And pretty soon we all look like Mr. Spock from the Vulcan community planet someplace. And when someone hugs you, you're like, you haven't been hugged in so long. You're like, ha, oh. oh. Don't you love the worship? Ha, oh. oh, we worshiped? I like to be hugged. I sit myself strategically to be hugged by somebody. That person's a hugger. I sit next to him. I don't worship up front because... I'm passionate. I worship up front because those guys in the front, they all give you hugs. <laughs> you know, that's only partly true. You know what I'm saying. And I'm saying the thing that we're trying to stop, we're actually perpetuating, and maybe we're even, maybe we're even causing it to grow. And so, I think... I want to wrap it up by saying this. First of all, we have to value the fact that God gave us a soul. He gave us a body. He gave us a spirit. And He loves us all. He loves 
He loves all of us, but I mean He loves all of us. Spirit, soul, and body. He loves all of us. He celebrates every part He made. He didn't make junk. He didn't make a mistake. Some of you are very emotional. God's like, He loves it. And people have used it against you. They're like, oh, you know, you're just so emotional. It's like, it's like saying you're not spiritual. And I'd like to just free you from that. Like, that's ridiculous. That's how God made you. We love it. Just be yourself. And some of you are not as emotional. It's, it's great. It's like, you don't, don't have to try to be somebody you're not. I'm not trying to like, you know, you need to be really emotional for God to love you or, what, or do anything weird. I'm not trying to bring any kind of weirdness to our culture. I'm just trying to bring you here. And all of you, I'd like all of you to come to church. I'd like all of you to be celebrated. And, and so, um, um, and, and then the last thing I feel obligated to say for obvious reasons, if you're having struggles with immorality, like guys, if you're you know, sexualizing women in your heart, this is not like the go sign for you to like, figure out some way to manifest your fantasy. So, you know, you, you need to, like, get some mentors in your life and learn how to manage your appetite and get that thing. You know, self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, capital S. And we need to learn how, and it isn't just men, but it's men and women. But we need to learn how to manage our appetite so we're not using this unholy affection as a way to get a need met some weird need met. You, I know I didn't say that very well, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. So, well, I mean, we need to sanctify our minds so that when we're giving that, that girl a kiss on the forehead, it's, we're actually giving her a kiss on the forehead. Like, that's actually what we're doing. That's all we're doing. That's what we're doing. There isn't some other weird thing going on. You, you know what I'm saying? When I'm giving somebody a hug, there isn't some weird bond going on. I'm... Uh, and, and I, I feel like this, this needs to be like fleshed out further so we're like, okay, what's appropriate? What is it? And, and all of that. But I think that we need to get to this place where we begin to value emotion, begin to value the soul, begin to value, we begin to say, listen, it's not less spiritual to be emotional. It's not, it doesn't hurt your relationship with God to cry tears or to laugh. And it's certainly, I think the religious spirit loves plastic. Just plastic faces, plastic masks. Everybody's always okay. And I just think it would be so amazing if you could come to a place and be real and be loved. So would you stand? I want to pray for you. I do. I want you to join hands. Would you just grab a hand, please? Just bridge the aisles. Grab a hand. It's amazing. Most of the time, when Jesus healed lepers, he touched them. Most of the time. The one time he didn't is in, I think, Luke 17, when he sent them to see the priests. It doesn't say he touched them there. But every other time, he touched the lepers. He showed them emotion. He showed them passion. 
and you're holding hands with somebody right now, and I want you just to pray for the person on your left and right, that the Lord would restore holy affection in their life. Would you do that? It's not an accusation that they're not holy. We're just praying that the Lord would restore holy affection in our culture. Just pray right now for the person on your left and right. And if you have other stuff to pray along that, then you just do that. And I'm going to lead you in a minute. You can pray out loud if you want. Pray for their hearts. Pray that God would restore their soul. Some people are shut down emotionally. Pray that God would awaken them. That He would awaken their emotions. That He would awaken their soul. Awake, awake, O soul. He would awaken the souls of believers. Oh, that He would awaken the soul of the bride. That the bride would awaken. Come on, let's pray for passion to return to the bride. Passion. Awake passion. Awake the bride. Lord, I pray for the matriarchs to arise in our culture and all over the globe that matriarchs would arise that would lead us back to, to pure passion, to holy passion. I pray for the bride to awaken all over this planet, for the bride to take her rightful place, for women to take their rightful place in leadership, to lead us into passion, to bring value for emotion, to bring value for affection back to the church. Lord, we pray for that. Lord, I pray, I release men, strong men, righteous, holy men, to be passionate towards one another, to love one another. Lord, I pray for that. Lord, I, I, I break the... Oh, no, this is being cast, podcasted. Be careful. Lord, we just, we pray for wholeness over every single person that people would be sexually whole we pray for people to be sexually whole I pray for that right now that men would get what they need from other men in a healthy way that sons would get what they need from fathers, that fathers would invite sons like the rite of passage. Follow what I'm praying right now and pray with me. I pray for fathers to create a rite of passage for sons to be welcomed in to manhood in a healthy way so they don't go after it in an unhealthy way. Lord, I pray for that right now in Jesus' name. I pray for women to be welcomed in 
young ladies to be welcomed into womanhood in a healthy way. Rite of passage. I just have this whole thing about rite of passage going through my mind. That there would be a rite of passage that, that, that boys be, could be welcomed into manhood. That girls could be welcomed into womanhood in a way that's healthy. So there isn't an unhealthy, perverted kind of need for, uh, for uh, affection that leads to all kinds of sexual immorality. And I'm, I'm not trying to be accusational at all, but Lord, I just pray that you would help people who never had a rite of passage. They never had a dad to say to the, to the boy, you're a man now. Come join the men. Come be with us. Come be part of manhood. They never had uh, the, the girl. They never had women around to say, come join us in womanhood. Lord, we pray for the rite of passage. We pray for affection to be restored. We pray for healthy soul ties. We pray for brotherhood. We pray for sisterhood. We pray that there would be brotherhood and sisterhood the way you designed it, the way that you, the way you wanted every joint supplies. We pray for covenant love. We pray for pure love. We pray for vows and covenants that are healthy and whole and not, not sexual or perverted or have some kind of manipulative spirit behind them. Lord, we pray for wholeness among us. God, we pray for our own church. We pray for this church. We pray for Bethel Church, that we would be whole, that we'd be spiritually whole, that we'd be emotionally whole in our soul, that we'd be physically whole, not just healed, but we'd be whole, that we'd be walking in wholeness in every part of our life. God, we pray for our minds. God, would you brainwash us? Would you take our brains and wash them pure? God, when our thoughts would be pure, our, our, our desires would be pure, that you would, that you would guide us by your spirit, that you would direct us by your spirit, that we would have self-control, because Holy Spirit is so part of our life, guiding us as a father, leading us into all truth, teaching us, training us, correcting us, directing us, and molding us. Holy Spirit, we give you full permission to not just lead us in the spirit, but to lead our whole man, to lead all of us, to lead every piece of our being. Lord, we pray that you would lead every piece of our being. Holy Spirit, lead our emotional man into wholeness, our soul man into wholeness, our body into wholeness. We want, we want you to restore life to our mortal bodies, to our mortal man. We pray for that in Jesus' name. God, we pray for people that have been damaged and broken from all kinds of bad culture and perversions and fatherlessness and motherlessness and people who never came home and hearts that never came home. God, we pray for those that are in this room tonight that hear this story and say, I never had a daddy tell me I was pretty. I never had a daddy tell me I was good. I never had a father say, you, you, son, you're a good man. Lord, I, I pray in Jesus' name that you would restore hearts that are broken. You would restore hearts to children, to fathers. That you would bridge that gap. That you would restore that heart that sons are no longer afraid of fathers. Fathers have connections with sons. The same with daughters and mothers. and Just as a whole family. Lord, I just pray for the wholeness to come into the body. Into our lives. It's Father's Day. May this be the day we can look back and say, I became whole that day. I know now I have a daddy who loves me. He cares about me. I'm not weird. I'm not, I'm not broken. I'm not strange. God, we just give permission for people to be themselves. 
people we're holding hands with, we just say, be yourself. We just want you. We want you to bring you with you. Thank you, Lord. We pray that the bride in, this, in, in the local body, this bride would awaken. That there would be untold beauty that's been hidden away in treasures, locked away in caskets. Lord, let the bride come out of the casket. Resurrect the soul of people that's long been dead in some lives here. Jesus, we thank you. We love you. Amen.